Dann mute. Uh. Okay. Okay. That's better. That, that, is that okay? That's not too loud, is it? All right. Well, hey, thanks for braving the cold and the, and the rain and being here. It is week 18. Uh, this is the first week we're talking about Matthew. And, of course, it's February the 7th. Um, let's turn to page 128 for, for prayer, and we will start talking about Matthew, and hopefully we'll get as far as you read. Give me the desire to obey your laws rather than to get rich. Keep me from paying attention to what is worthless. Be good to me as you have promised. Keep your promise to me, your servant, the promise you make to those who obey you. Amen. Um, because we split the reading in a little funny way, I'm going to forgo the video at least this week, also because we only made it through chapter like nine this morning. Um, I want to give you a really big uh, permission, please. Like, you read this material. There were things you were interested in or bothered you. Um, make sure we talk about those things. Some of the things I prepared to talk about may be extremely boring for you, and just say that's really boring. Uh, I would like to know more about blank. That'll be really, it'll be fine. Um, but what I actually wanted to do is talk to you a little bit about the four Gospels in general first, some of the groups that get addressed in the Gospels, because we haven't done that yet, and then maybe start to wade through if that's okay. So, um, you know, historically, we've got these four Gospels, and they're not at all written, or they're not, we have them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We think the order that they're written in is actually more like Mark, Matthew, and Luke, hard to say. A lot of people put Matthew ahead of Luke, but pretty much no one thinks Math, Luke was reading Matthew, so they're like independently developed. Almost everybody will tell you um, Matthew and Luke were reading Mark, for example. And then John comes in dead last. Um, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, we, we call them these names, those are traditional names, and tradition says that the person who wrote Matthew is the disciple Matthew, also called Levi in the book. He'd be a tax collector if that were the case. Um, Mark is... Uh, tradition says, is um, this young man who's in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested, and he like runs away, but a Roman grabs his soldier, and he runs away naked because the garment stays. Uh, Luke is not in the Gospels at all. He, he's a companion of Paul, most likely. He's a physician, a Gentile. Since we talked about icons, tradition says he's the first iconographer. So the icons of St. Luke, theoretically, are like how the people really looked. Um, and then John would be the disciple John, uh, the brother of James. Uh, approximate dates. So, so Mark, earliest one, maybe at earliest 30 years after Jesus has resurrected. So you're thinking a whole generation's past, if that sort of makes sense. Actually, probably one and a half. With a life expectancy of 30 years, a generation's really 20, if that makes sense. Um, so, so this is at least a generation after. Um, clearly, these stories had been uh, passed down orally before they're written, and, and part of the evidence for that is that you know Matthew and Luke are well acquainted with other stories, so, so they had a bigger storyboard. Um, interestingly enough, you know our, our New Testament is not chronological at all. The first book to be written, probably First Thessalonians. 
potentially Galatians, and then you would find the Gospels after all the Pauline letters before you'd read sort of the, the letters that Paul's students wrote, before you'd find things like Second Peter and First and Second and Third John, and then you'd find John, and then you'd find Revelation. So John is actually towards the end, even though it comes toward the beginning. Does that sort of make sense? Um, Yeah, how did our Bible come to be the way it is? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't arranged chronologically. It was in some ways tried, the, the, the intention was to arrange it thematically and by author, and there were some gaffes. And, and you know, none of our documents say by Matthew. That's a traditional ascription. The documents themselves never claim that, if, if that makes sense. Well, here's the thing. Luke never says, by Luke. Author is Luke. Didn't, never says it. Not once. In Acts, in, in, in Acts um, Luke talks about Luke and then changes to the first person. So that's, that's some thinking there. The, 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 the grammar, diction, syntax of Acts, very comparable to Luke. So you could make a strong argument that this is the same author. But, but again, there's no... Nowhere in any ancient manuscripts is there something that says, by Luke. Does that make sense? Um, and nor does John say, by, by John. I, I don't mean they didn't write it. I just mean, you know, it, the documents don't make that claim themselves. That's a traditional thing. And John's an interesting one because the date of John, definitely around somewhere 100, so that's 70 years after the resurrection. Now, if John was an adult when he was called to be a disciple, he had to at least be 13, which would mean he had to be 83 when he wrote the gospel. That's possible. I mean, Michelangelo Buonarotti was 86, and similar life expectancy in, in Renaissance. That's possible. Unlikely, but, but, but possible. You, you know, people in general died in their 30s. Uh, and John's interesting because, you see, he would be really three generations after the resurrection. And, and interestingly enough, his gospel is the most uh, philosophical, maybe because three generations of reflection does that for you, you know. These... Or because he was in his age, very possible, yeah. Well, and definitely the interesting thing is that John who wrote is very familiar with Greco-Roman culture and less familiar with Jewish culture. These three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics uh, because while they have a lot of variation in them, they have similar stories and they, pre they present actually a pretty similar vision of Jesus, right? So sin is like, and optic is that, that vision. So they're the synoptic gospels. You can actually find books that puts them in parallel. So you read the, 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 the Matthew version and the, the Mark version and the Luke version. And when you read them side by side, you'll notice that there are dramatic similarities. Of course, you'll also notice that there are sometimes dramatic differences. Just to give you an example, and this is what I want to tell you about th themes a little bit. Um, so sometimes, <clears throat> and, and the, way I, uh, the way I grew up actually too, was that um, since they're all about the same thing, you just merge them all together and you get one story of Jesus. And you can do that. Our, our brain likes to do that. We don't like to have competing versions of a story. Um, however, there is some real strong value into to reading what 
Matthew wants you to know about Jesus and resting there, and then saying, oh, Mark is giving me a different version. What is Mark trying to say that's different? Not because Mark's wrong, just what's the impression Mark's leading me to? Does, it, does that sort of make sense? Um, so just for example, this real easy to pick on some language. <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. They could be the same thing. They could be, but, um, but, they're, but they're not. D- does, that, does that make sense? Or they don't have to be. They could be variations. Um, <clears throat> we're pretty sure that Matthew is writing in general to a Jewish congregation for lots of reasons. Um, people who started out Jewish uh, and, and maybe are, are, are Christian. One is he calls it the kingdom of heaven, always. Luke calls it the kingdom of God. If you're Jewish, you don't like to use the word God. You say Hashem. Um, there's a, some other reasons for the way Matthew approaches the law. And in, Jesus, in, in Matthew, like we'll talk earlier, later, uh, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Who else gave a sermon on a mount? Well, Moses did. So in Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. And in Luke, Jesus gives the sermon on the plain where everybody's equal. In Matthew, the genealogy goes back to Abraham, the father of Judaism. In Luke, the genealogy goes back to Adam, the father of everybody. It doesn't mean Luke's better. It doesn't mean that. It means it's, it's helping us pick apart part of their goal and what they're trying to tell their people about Jesus which could be a little bit different, and, and that's not a bad thing, actually. The, the, the thing that I've come to realize is that no good storyteller tells the same story twice. Is it okay if I repeat that? No, no good storyteller tells the same story twice because good storytelling is contingent upon the relationship between the storyteller and the audience, not between the story and the audience. There's always interface that happens in good storytelling, like reading the crowd, pausing for laughter. The storyteller has to be invested in the story or the relationship suffers, right? Uh, and that's part of what's, what's going on, is these people are telling you a story, but they're, but they're not really telling it to you. They're telling it to a specific group of people that they have in mind, and, and they, know how they, they know the context of their audience and how that needs to come across. So in some ways, it's helpful to think through, oh, in that context, this is really what they're trying to communicate. Um, likely, these stories were passed on orally over and over and over again, you see, um, and, and that's when they sort of d- developed more, you know, while a good storyteller doesn't tell the same story twice in its exact form, right, might take kernels of a story and embellish and refine and reorder the kernels of a story over and over again. Does, does, does that make sense? Just for fun, um, <coughs> In the four-headed, cher- uh, four-headed cherubim, John is the eagle, he has the bird's eye view, and Matthew's the human head, and, and Mark's the lion, and Luke's the ox. Okay, isn't that fun? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know why. 
I mean, that's the tradition. Though. So if you see a fancy Bible cover or if you see stained glass windows depicting the Gospelers, uh, Luke is always an ox and, and Matthew's a human head and John's an eagle. I know the eagle one. He's got the eagle eye view. It's all about, it's really philosophical. Jesus doesn't do a lot of things in John. He talks a lot. In, in Mark, Jesus does a bunch of stuff and then talks, like he earns the right to speak. In Matthew, he does some stuff first, and then he talks, and then he does some stuff. And it's just, uh, so they all have a little different way of doing it. And, and a way to think about these Gospels that are similar but different, not only as their audience, but just to think through, they've got some really similar ingredients. It's kind of like either Iron Chef or, a, um, or some Masons. They have their pile of ingredients, and the question is, how will they cook them together? So... The ingredients are certain stories about Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath day or Jesus interacted with the centurion. The cooking is where do they put the ingredient in order. There's some stories that happen in Mark right at the beginning that Matthew puts in the middle of what Jesus did. So it changes the sequence. When do you add the garlic? You, 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 you see what I mean? Um, and then the real cooking is not just even the order, though, and this is where masonry is helpful. It's not just the bricks. Sometimes it's how they mortar things. So in, in Mark, Jesus says this bit about you can't pour new wine into old wineskins to explain why he talks in parables, and he does it immediately first and then tells parables. And that's his framing is you need you need. You need new wines, you need new containers to hold what I'm saying. If you try to fit what I'm saying into the way you understand life, it won't work. You have to re-understand life. <laughs> I'll make that argument later. If I don't make it tonight, we'll do it when we get to Mark, because I think it's stronger in Mark than anywhere. <clears throat> Matthew puts it in a totally different place, and it's not about parables at all. He, he's using the quote to say something different than Mark uses the quote to say. I don't know if that makes sense. It's just, again, it's all about where they stack their bricks because they're all making different walls for you to look at. They're all making a different dish. The order they put it in and whether they saute it or blanch it or boil it, 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 it that's the deal. <laughs> Does that make sense? Now, you can read some real crazy stuff that says, listen, Matthew and Luke were both reading Mark, but they read a book Mark didn't have because Matthew and Luke have stories in common that Mark doesn't have. So the easiest thing to call those stories is Q, because in German that stands for Quelle, which means source. So Mark just has Mark. Luke has Mark and Q and something called L, which stands for Luke, because <laughs> only Luke has that. And Matthew has Mark and Q and M, which stands for Matthew. Now, you could spend a lot of time with different color highlighters going through and highlighting. No, no, you really, you can. Many professors make that assignment. Uh, so I don't want to bore you with that, but that's sort of, that's sort of how they, they, they relate and differentiate. Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, 
Yeah, good. And and I and I think and I think the thing is right in this. In, in, in I told you, storytellers don't repeat the same story, but sometimes they, the the quote is so poignant that 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 it is memorable. I mean, you just think through like certain certain things that kind of ride throughout our our collective history, like "Yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death." I mean, that that's extremely memorable, and people have found that an anchor since William Tyndale wrote it, so much so that King James wouldn't vary that translation because it already hooked people precisely at those words, you know? So we have these unattributed quotes that float around uh, culturally, like there's three kind of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Maybe you've heard that. Falsely attributed to Mark Twain, Benjamin Disraeli is likely the first person who said it. But the truth, it didn't really matter who said it. We find it catchy and pithy. And, and some of the sayings of Jesus, I think, easily, easily fit that. Now, when you get into a longer block of narrative, that's, why you'll find, that's when you'll find more variants. But a pithy saying, I mean, consider that there are some, some variants like blessed and poor and spirit, blessed and poor. They've got the same anchor that you're somehow blessed in the middle of your poverty, but, but further defining that poverty. You know, and that's the kind of thing that happens in these urban legend unattributed quotes that we still find valuable and sometimes embellish, but the, the, the core stays the same. That may have sounded like nonsense, but I, but I hope, it, hope it makes sense. That there's generally accepted phraseology in a lot of our, in our a lot of quotations that, that we almost get word for word. So we don't know about written material. I mean, the truth is, could there be written material about Jesus earlier than this? Yes, and we haven't found it. Uh, what's strange is that in the letters of Paul, there's almost no stories about Jesus. There's really just one, that on the night he was betrayed, to, handed over to suffering and death, he took bread and said, this is my body, and he took wine and said, this is my blood. That's the only story about Jesus Paul tells you. Did Paul not know any stories of Jesus, or did he take for granted people already knew them? See, we don't know the answer to that. Yeah, the other thing that's really critical to remember, too, is it's, it's just so hard to get my head around a mostly illiterate culture and the value of writing in that culture. Because again, I think one, we could say, oh, like Mark wrote this, so the stories would be really accurate. I'm not sure that that's true because there are not that many people that could read. You know, I almost wonder if these aren't like crib notes for the master storyteller who's presenting the story. Do, do, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and certainly I think you get the difference between just contemporary, somebody straight on reading a sermon to you word for word and somebody who's written it and then lays it aside and speaks with you. Does, does that make sense? I think those things are really different. Um, oops. So... <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I will tell you, for example, there's like some scandals that come out in Newsweek every four years. And Newsweek is good, by the way, because um, Mark, being the earliest one, is written at the Newsweek reading level, which is like the fifth grade reading level. Um, Matthew and Luke are more like time, which is like an eighth or ninth grade level. And John is more like Harper's. 
if, if, that, if those publications make sense to you. Um, Newsweek does something really interesting there. Every four or five years, there'll be a story like, the lost gospel of Thomas and how it rocks Christianity. It doesn't at all, by the way. Um, Thomas contains two sayings of Jesus not found in these, and they're completely like poppycock, like they didn't make any sense. And, and the reason they don't rock Christianity is because the Gospel of Thomas comes 50 years after John. It's so late, who cares? I, I'm just sorry, but anything, like, you, just, you lose some of the, the corrective criterion as things get really, really old, new. Like there's no possibility someone was alive to witness the events. You got it. Now, I will tell you, most scholars don't think there's any eyewitness account here either. I, I, don't, I don't want to debate that. It doesn't matter to me. Right? I mean, again, uh, these, these, I don't think, purport to be eyewitness accounts. These things are written so you can know who Jesus is and believe, which means, like, shape your life. That they all do fine, you, you know? So, again, I, I think it's a silly thing to debate whether he wrote it or didn't. The question is, how is he inviting us to shape our lives? Hardest for... Yeah. Very fair. Hardest for that to happen with John. Hardest, just thinking about the distance, but, but theoretically possible. What a lot of people think about John and some of the letters in the New Testament, if Paul didn't write them, a student of Paul wrote them, so that they're, second, they're of second, uh, secondary sources. But secondary sources aren't bad. You know, I mean, I, I, I never got throttled for using a secondary source as long as I knew it was. The problem is when you're using a tertiary source, and you're acting like that's a secondary. You know what I mean? I think the, the question is, are you, are you critically aware of where, who your sources are? I mean, that, that's always important. Um, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Peter, there's tons of Gospels. There's a book I just saw right now that has some of them in there. You can regale yourself with all kinds of Gospels if you want to. Why didn't they make it into our Bible? Not enough people were reading them. They weren't old enough. They were found incoherent with these. Like the Gospel of Thomas, nobody outside of Egypt seemed to care about it. So when the whole empire got together and only this little tiny, when only Rhode Island's reading something, who, who cares? <laughs> now, if it were a cool state like Texas, everybody would care, but we're talking about Rhode Island. Okay, does that, does, is, that, is that okay as an introduction? I mean, listen, you could spend a whole course on kind of what I'm talking about right now, but I just wanted to give you a basic idea that we'll, we'll continue to peek, peek at as we go through. Um, I also thought it would be really important to just tell you up front that there's a lot of groups mentioned very critically in, in the Gospels, um, and, and quite honestly, um, they kind of have gotten a bad rap in, in the history of Christianity, mainly because there's very little understanding about these folks. So let me start with, there's kind of four Jewish denominations at the time. Interestingly enough, there's four Jewish denominations today. Um, the, the, the first group to know about the Sadducees. Now those are people, you can say, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Um, but, but in fact, they're not really sad. Um, <laughs> the, these are people who control the temple, so they have political and religious power. They're not just priests, mind you, but in general, the temple is run by Sadducees. Primary beliefs is that the only scripture to read is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch or the Torah. That's all they, that's done. That's five and done. The Sadducees believe when you die, and this shouldn't be surprising to you, you go to Sheol and that's what you do. 
That's pretty normal, actually, right? Resurrection's a relatively new idea, as I'd mentioned to you. It's abhorrent to Greek people, and um, so, so it's, it's sort of new. Sadducees also believe in total free will. Nothing is fixed. Nothing. There's no fate. I don't know if they're a small group, but in general, if you're a Sadducee, your religious life consists in purity laws and um, piety at the temple, so rites, R-I-T-E-S. That's what Sadducees do. Sacrifice, temple, that's the life. Now, there's this other group that comes and they start meeting not just at the temple, they meet in synagogues. And we sort of think the Pharisees um, are really well identified with synagogues. The Pharisees are liberal Jews <laughs> because, and by the way, they mesh with the Sadducees because they also go to the temple, mind you, and they read the Torah, but the Pharisees also read the prophets and they read the Psalms. So whoever wrote Matthew had to have been educated by a Pharisee at some point because they quote prophets and Psalms all over the place. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Jesus is educated by a Pharisee because he quotes Psalms and prophets. Sadducees would never quote those things. Pharisees, some Pharisees believe in a resurrection. Like I told you, they're still working out what that means. Some resurrection of the dead, they believe in that, which makes them liberal also. The most interesting thing about the Pharisees is that they wanted their religious life to inform their everyday life. So in addition to rites, the Pharisees develop a way of life. That is, an, uh, their, their piety should form their, their ethics. Pharisees are usually condemned as hypocrites in the Bible, but you should know if you have a flat tire, that's who you want coming behind you on I-45 as a Pharisee for the following couple of reasons. If you're Jewish, you have to fast one day a year, Yom Kippur, you don't eat or drink. The Pharisees recognized that not all Jewish people did that, so they decided they would fast once a week to make up for the people who don't fast once a year. They decided to carry the community burden. That may sound crazy, but I think it's pretty sweet actually. And um, you're supposed to tithe to support the Levites obviously 10% of certain spices and growings, the Pharisees tithe 10% of everything because they know not everybody gives their 10th. So they're supporting the Levites on behalf of the people who don't support at all. So I actually think that's relatively generous and compassionate. And uh, again, if you needed help, you wouldn't go to a church, you'd go to a Pharisee. Now, I didn't want you to think that Pharisees hated Sadducees because, again, there's a lot, of, a lot of overcarry in the Venn diagram. You could have been a temple at the priest in Jerusalem and been very sympathetic with the Pharisaic position. It's not like you wore a special badge that said P. Uh, but, but these are uh, different sort of schools of thought. There's another group of people called the Zealots, and this is important because Jesus has two of them in the 12 disciples. Zealots are uh, basically Zionists of the first century. So they hate Rome and are committed to overthrowing Rome. They may not even be religious at all. They could just be ethnically Jewish, like from Judah. Remember, Jew means from Judah. Um, 
and, and they're willing to um, do lots of things, uh, even uh, murder people, to make this happen. There's a subset of zealots called the Sicarii, which means long-knifed people. And the Sicarii were basically uh, terrorists of the ancient world, like uh, Al-Qaeda. And they would do things like uh, go in a crowded day, go up to a Roman soldier from behind and slit his throat and disappear into the crowd. And I'd say that's very difficult to track the person who did that. Sort of like killing someone at Mardi Gras. Good luck. In New Orleans, mind you, not, not in Santa Fe. That's an easier one, right? <laughs> but in Mardi Gras, it would be really, really tough to find immediately. That's what they do. So, so they would call themselves freedom fighters, but Rome would call them terrorists, if that makes sense. Uh, there are some Zionists today that would, would fit in that camp who may not be religious at all, or they could be extremely orthodox, or they could be Sadducees who also had this bent, right? So this is where you, you get some cross-pollination in the categories. Uh, the last group, and these people aren't really important in our Bible, except we think John the Baptist is probably one of them, and this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls 75% of people think it came from. There's this um, group of people who uh, live in the desert called the Essenes. Really, they decided the Jerusalem temple was corrupt for actually some pretty valid reasons. And so <coughs> they separated themselves from Jerusalem and worshiped in the desert. And they weren't all priests, but they decided that they would live like they were all priests all the time. So there's rules for priests when they're getting ready to go up to do rites they don't have to follow them all the time, like cel temporary celibacy and uh, food, food purity and ritual washing. So those only apply when you're active as a priest in burning incense or consecrating the, the bread. Well, the Essenes decided they'd live like that all the time, which meant they were a completely celibate male community. Uh, they ritually washed themselves. They actually believed everything was fixed and faded. And these are the people, we think, who ended up in the library that is the Dead Sea Scrolls today. A lot of people think John the Baptist was one of these people for some time. Uh, they were essentially monks. They've, they've separated themselves from mainstream society because mainstream society is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and they're going to flee the coming wrath. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of the, the best analogy I, I, I can try to offer. They have some real wacky ideas. You can read them in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> Are there any of the Jews today that don't believe in resurrection? Oh, yeah, plenty. And in general, most Jewish people don't, for example, believe in hell at all. At all. Maybe, maybe for like Hitler and Haman, if there is one. But a lot of Jewish people today don't believe in heaven either. They just sort of don't. What happens when you die? Eh, who knows? Remember that most Jewish people today... I mean, uh, I'm recording this, so this is scary, but in general, um, are, are, are probably uh, a atheistic Jewish people. Now, Judaism is a way of life and heritage, but not a religious way of life as we think of it. By the way, that doesn't matter whether you're Orthodox, Reform, or Conservative. There's plenty of Orthodox Jewish people that don't necessarily believe in this relationship with a transcendent God. They just, this is a way of life. This, we do this because this, this is who we are. Does that make sense? 
By the way, I'd say there's lots of Christians that go like that too, and I don't know that that's bad. It's their way of life, you know? I mean, I think there's plenty of people that go to church because that's how they grew up doing, and, and they, you know, it's fun to have, uh, you know, nice services, and, and, and people are nice, and, and there's, you know, it's nice when we do neat things, and, and that's, I know very involved people in that, that's their religious life. I, and I'm, I'm not judging that, I just, but I think it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really fair, right? To have a bar mitzvah or a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you have to prepare for those things and then what happens after that preparation? It's sort of like, you know, we wanted to get our kids confirmed. They went through confirmation class at twelve and now here at forty eight they don't know anything about the Episcopal Church. Exactly. Which I didn't think is a bad thing. I just I'm just describing reality. You know what I mean? I'm just describing. And, and I think that's true for, for a lot of folks, because I think sometimes we think, oh, like, religion is all about, like, a particular piety stance, but, I, but I'm not sure that it is. I mean, I think religion is really about a way of life. And, and so these are ways of life. We all have ways of life that could be, uh, could have very different pietistic representations. And Anyway. Oh, yeah, no, even today, right, like you can, and this is an interesting thing, and I'm not judging, <laughs> in general, I think it's, these tactics are not really scrupulous to employ, but, um, you know, there's people who are settling against the, against the law, like in the West Bank, and some of them are ultra-Orthodox, who may not believe in God at all, and some of them are ex- extremely atheistic, who are saying, this is our land. It's Zionism is a way is is really a way of life that may or may not have anything to do with these things. <laughs> could be completely detached from piety, which could be completely detached from ritual. I think though, if you if you if you think through this, I, I really think this is true of a lot of religious people. I just I really do, and I don't think it's bad. Sometimes I do things without feeling them because they're ways of life for me. Okay, I, I didn't mean to go there, but, but I did. Uh, those are some of our groups. Now, I told you what's interesting is that um, Jesus has two disciples who are zealots. One is called Simon the Zealot. <laughs> Hint, he's a zealot. And then he has another one called Judas, Judas the Sicari, which really you say that Judas Iscariot. So he's got the zealot and then like the Al-Qaeda zealot. And then he's got Matthew, the tax collector. And this may surprise you, but zealots and Sicari hated tax collectors because tax collectors are Jewish people collecting and extorting money from Jewish people and giving it to Rome. They're like Benedict Arnold sort of people. So at least three of the disciples hated each other. At least. Which gives me hope for the church (laughs) because Jesus was able to unite people that categorically hated each other. I mean, that's that's a pretty big accomplishment, don't you think? Okay, then are we ready to go and take a deeper look at Matthew? And thematically, I hope this is okay to say, we'll bounce back to it a few times. Matthew uses the Hebrew Bible in a very interesting way. 
Um, I, I want to tell you, uh, I don't think he uses it very straightforwardly. I think what Matthew tries to say is that Jesus fulfills the scripture. Not in the sense that the Hebrew Bible was predicting Jesus, but that there are these phrases embedded in Jewish religious identity that Jesus resonates with. I don't know how to say it more clearly than that, so, so I'm just going to um, point them out as we go, but I wanted to say that up front. In, in Matthew's genealogy, it is not factual. He does not carefully trace his Hebrew Bible to the correct numbers of people. There are way more people than three groups of 14. There's just way more people. He conveniently coalesces them so he can have some numeric symmetry. From Abraham... To exile to Abraham to David, from David to exile, from exile to Jesus. Fourteen generations. You can go back and read First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, and I will tell you there are different than fourteen in each group. Matthew's not concerned with accuracy, he's concerned with giving us his people a picture of who Jesus was and what he means. And that symmetry is really important. Interestingly enough, Joseph is the one related to David. Did you notice? And Joseph isn't related to Jesus. Did you notice that? And I think this is really important. I didn't think I really got this point until today, actually, when I was trying to describe it. When, when When Matthew says Jesus is from the line of David, he can't literally mean that because Jesus is not related to David. Not biologically, Joseph ain't his daddy. And Mary's not related to David, not according to Matthew, or if she is, Matthew didn't talk about that. What, what Matthew is saying is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingship. <laughs> He's in line that way, figuratively, not biologically. I know this may be disturbing for you, but you've read the gospel and I haven't just, I didn't make any of that up. <laughs> you might say, Mike, I thought in Judaism, your lineage is matrilineal. Not in Matthew. It's all about Joseph. That's the dad who's not the dad. I saw this really interesting church sign on Facebook, by the way. It's comedic relief. Uh, somebody on their marquee put, Jesus had two dads and he turned out okay. Which <laughs> I. <laughs> Okay, anyway, um, that's, that's, that's the deal, uh, and that's really how, how Matthew uses the scripture. This is one of those examples. Not literally, but Jesus represents what David represented, the ideal king, the ideal leader for people. Um, there is a, a gospel that's in that book over there. It's called the Proto-Gospel of Thomas. talks about Jesus' baby. says Joseph was 89 years old. That's where the tradition comes into Christianity. Joseph was real old and Mary really young. But you notice that's not in Matthew. You also notice in Matthew, Jesus has brothers and a mother who come to take him away. Now in Greek, the word brother doesn't mean cousin, it means brother. In the Roman church, brother means cousin because there's a conviction that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And what helps is if Joseph was 89, he never consummated the relationship with Mary. That's a tradition you get out of the proto-gospel of Thomas, but it's not in the Bible. I just want to point that out. It could be true. It's just not here. And, and later, Jesus is described as having brothers, which doesn't mean half-brothers. It, it doesn't mean that. It means brothers. 
as in Joseph and Mary had more kids. Matthew seems very clear about that and not threatened by Mary's perpetual virginity or not. Um, the other thing uh, to sort of mention going up from the genealogy is that even though this is patrilineal and it's written for Jewish people, Matthew does an interesting thing. He includes some really naughty women. Luke doesn't have any women in the genealogy, and Luke is really friendly to women. So this is weird. Matthew is the one who has Tamar and Ruth, who were both Canaanites and uh, both do a little bit of unladylike things. <laughs> one wonders if, if Matthew isn't trying to get the Jewish community to expand their inclusivity using their own scriptures. It may be interesting for you to know that uh, the custom appears to be that you're betrothed around a year before you're married. And betrothal is sort of like when you pay not like a deposit. Remember, women are commodities and they're bought. So a father does not give a wedding gift. A husband pays a bride price. Um, that bride price is paid at the betrothal. That's sort of like when you sign the contract. But the marriage happens later. So Joseph, again, we don't know how old he is, but he is paid for Mary. And seeing as Joseph is probably a member of the lower class because he's not a noble, this, this is maybe his life savings he's invested to get this wife. And then she ends up pregnant, and Joseph knows it wasn't him. <laughs> so his, his options are, say, she's a prostitute, give me my money back, and burn her alive. That would have been uh, not just legal, that would have been practiced. Joseph, because he's an honorable man, says the scriptures, <laughs> decides to marry her and divorce her quietly, which would mean if he divorces her, uh, she won't be able to get married again, but her father can keep the bride price. So, so it's possible that Joseph actually loves Mary and, and does not want to see her burned alive. Comes out looking like a pretty decent fellow, don't you think? <laughs> this is financially ruinous to Joseph, by the way, this plan, because um, you only get one life savings. By the time you get another, y you're dead. <laughs> does, this, does this make sense? He's willing to forego marriage and children to save Mary's life. Of course, the angel says, you don't got to do that. It's okay. And, and, and you'll notice, by the way, the angel talks to Joseph. In Luke, the angel talks to Mary. How interesting. Um, the angel says, no, no, this is from God, and, and she's uh, going to have this baby. And this is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. The young woman will, have, uh, will give birth to a child and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, notice they don't name their baby Emmanuel. They name him Jesus. <laughs> does, does this make sense what I'm saying? It's not a literal one-to-one -one that's happening. It's, it's, a, it's a figurative fulfillment, right? Jesus is going to really be God with us, but his name will not be Emmanuel. It'll just be Jesus. Is, is, is that okay? <laughs> I don't want to come across like abrasively on this because it's possible you haven't heard this perspective before. 
I'm not sure that, it, like I said, I don't know that it's crystallized so sharply for me until thinking through the material today, but, but this, this, this is what Matthew does with the Bible. I, I'll show you a few more in just a bit. Matthew's the only one who has the Magi, right? And again, this is curious because the Magi are more than likely Zoroastrian priests. They're definitely Gentiles. They're probably from Iran, and they follow a star in the sky, which um, we, the tradition says... Um, this is why it's so scribbling. I started drawing these things. Um, <clears throat> tradition says the star looked just like that. <laughs> now, if you've been to a Roman Catholic church, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, this is actually the vision that Constantine had in 312 at the Battle of Milvan, Vi- Milvan Bridge. This is the symbol Constantine printed on all the shields before that decisive battle. <clears throat> he heard a voice from heaven that said, You've seen this one before? Oh, in hocto signo s or something like that. My Latin's terrible. In this sign, you'll conquer. So Constantine did not have a vision of this cross. He had a vision of that one. And tradition says that's what the star looked like that the Magi followed. Of course, this is really just the first two letters of the word Christ in Greek. The chi and the rho. And Christ in Greek means Messiah in Hebrew, which means anointed one in English. So the Magi follow that, and they, they come to Herod, and they say, where's the king of the Jews? Herod is upset, and all of Jerusalem with him. The reason all of Jerusalem is upset, because they all hated Herod, is because Herod, when, gets, when he gets really mad, a lot of people die. <laughs> in fact, Herod gave orders that on the night of his death, Um, the two most popular uh, sort of lay leaders in each town should be executed so that lots of people would cry at Herod's death. (laughs) Not for it, at it. (laughs) That was fine for Herod. (laughs) Pretty much. So actually that story is not so far-fetched, right? Um, They come up and they give gifts, which I told you is really, you know, we always hear that frankincense is like something you use for incense and it represents worshiping a deity and myrrh is like a burial spice so that they're preparing Jesus for his birth and gold is a gift of kings, right? And this is what we've been told. Maybe, uh, you know, it turns, (laughs) maybe. I I mentioned this last epiphany. I really wanted to give the sermon again because I just think this is delightful. Uh, What you really do with frankincense is you put it on a pedestal and burn it and you waft it into your armpits because it's deodorizing. Um, So so there's a really strong argument that that the the, the Magi gave Jesus some deodorant. And uh, myrrh is actually like like a multivitamin. You drink that stuff. It's terrible, but you drink that. So they gave him some, you know, Centrum vitamin or some Geritol, however you want to view it, and then uh, they gave him some pocket change, um, which is a neat sermon to think about that the gifts that we give are the ones we have, not the ones we don't. This is sort of an interesting way in paying homage to, to God among us is to share what we have. Um, anyway, they do that, and then, and then they leave, and then Herod does something very resonant with the Bible. Did he really do it? I don't know. There's no evidence that Herod slaughtered the innocents on December the 28th. There's, there's, we don't have carcasses. But we do know Pharaoh did that. And we do know that Herod represents a brutal, oppressive tyrant like Pharaoh. So Jesus' story is resonating with the story of Israel's. 
So, so much so that they go to Egypt <laughs> to get away from the tyrant in Israel. Now, that's weird because never, never has going to Egypt been a great idea in the Bible, except for that one time when Joseph was there and there was that famine, you know. Uh, and then they leave after Herod dies, said that Jesus could fulfill the scripture, out of Israel I've called my son. Now that scripture is, is it's God talking about the Hebrew people as God's son, not literally, but figuratively. So this is how Jesus, how Matthew is applying that to Jesus. Does, does that make sense? Did they literally go to Egypt? Maybe. They don't in Luke, they don't in John, and they don't in Matthew. Where do they come back to? Where are they from? See, they go back, ultimately they go to Nazareth. Really, Joseph wants to go to Bethlehem. But Archelaus is reigning, so he doesn't go. Which sort of makes you think when you read Matthew that Joseph just lived in Bethlehem the whole time that there was no journey on a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They went to Nazareth after they escaped Egypt to get away from another tyrant. And Matthew does something really interesting with the quote. This is to fulfill the scripture. He will be a Nazarene, which sort of means from Nazareth. There's no scripture that says that. <laughs> The scripture says something about being a Nazarite. <laughs> What's the difference? The Nazarites are the people who take vows to God, and during their vow, they don't cut their hair or drink wine or touch a dead body, which includes eating meat. There's three Nazarites for life in the Bible. John the Baptist, Samson, who breaks all the vows, and Samuel the prophet. Jesus is definitely not a Nazarite. <laughs> he drinks wine. He eats meat, which means he could have cut his hair. <laughs> He's not this. He's not one of those ever. What <laughs> Matthew is trying to do is make Jesus represent... Nazarite actually in Hebrew means like guardian... The, Matthew's trying to say that Jesus is one of these sort of guardians of identity in God, but does it by having him live in Nazareth, <laughs> not by taking Nazarite vows. No, I'm not trying to tell you Matthew made a big mistake. No, I think he intentionally is using Scripture this way. That's what I'm trying to say. If I did it this way, you might say, don't do that, I don't like that. <laughs> Too bad, that's what Matthew did. <laughs> And that's to fulfill the scripture. This is how Matthew's using the scripture is saying Jesus is in continuity with these ideas even if the particular is we change a little bit. As an engineer, you may not like the idea of massaging data. This is data massage. <laughs> For a good cause. It's called management. Is that what you're oh. <laughs> yes. This study about the drug has showed up bad side effects. Let's delete it. Um, okay, that got us to chapters one and two. <laughs> Did I miss anything? 
I just am amazed. I just sometimes, sometimes I think this has got to be incredibly boring for you all. <laughs> you tell me if there's something you you really want, please. Um, the next quote that 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 uh, Matthew changes, uh, and it just comes right after this one. You, you know, in, in, in Isaiah, the quote says. Um, a voice of one calling, begin quotes, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Well, Matthew didn't do that. He says John shows up to fulfill Isaiah who said, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, begin quotes, prepare the way of the Lord. So Matthew moves where the quotes happen. The difference is, in Isaiah, the thing says, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Go out there and get it ready. Matthew has the voice coming from the wilderness. Does that make a big difference? Well, well, I mean, it's a misquote. And yeah, really, this is locative, and this is about where God's action is going to happen, and this is where the voice comes from. Either way, you have to prepare the way of the Lord, you see. Either way, you've got to do that. But Isaiah had in mind that you prepare it in the rough places. Matthew says the proclamation came from the rough places. Matthew's version is actually more universal. You prepare the way of the Lord everywhere, in the rough places and in the plains and in the pretty places. Isaiah has in mind specifically the journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem and let those rough places be level to prepare God returning the people from exile. Does it make a big difference? I'm not saying to say Matthew's bad. Again, I'm just drawing attention to how he, how he, how he uses Scripture. It sure can be both and, you know. Uh, interestingly enough, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to get baptized. And John calls them a brood of vipers. Now, the gospel spent a lot of time condemning these people that I told you were generally pretty good. And the truth is, um, you only really have to differentiate people that uh, are not easily differentiable. Because if I were compared to compare to you, like, I don't know, like a Satanist and a nun, I wouldn't have to spend a lot of time doing that. <laughs> You'd say, oh, those are pretty opposite. But if I was going to talk to you about a, a four-square uh, free will Baptist and a four-square Baptist, I'd really have to describe the differences for you. So what most scholars will tell you is, at the time of the writing, a lot of folks didn't get any differences between Pharisees, Sadducees, early Christians, and scribes, and that's why the Gospels work so hard to differentiate themselves. Does that make sense? They actually had a lot more in common with those groups than they had with a lot of other groups. I was at one church, and a um, lady got up to read scripture. She was a deacon, and she read, this <laughs> she read this scripture with, like, real excitement. And John said, get away, you blood of vipers. <laughs> so I don't know if it's worse to be a brood of vipers or blood of vipers, but there you have it. Um, <clears throat> John goes on to say something very interesting to a Jewish audience. I tell you, God is able of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. So don't say, we have Abraham as our father. 
Um, again, it, your Jewish identity is patrilineal and it comes from your father at this time, right? So he's basically saying to a group of Jewish people, um, your identity comes from repentance, not from biology. I think that's an interesting message to tell a Jewish community. Um, he says Jesus is the one who comes after him is going to be like a refiner's fire, right? Keep that in mind, refiner's fire, that's not to punish, that's to purify. We can read hell into John the Baptist, but he's not talking about hell at all. Jesus shows up and he wants to be baptized and John says, this is not a good plan. <laughs> you, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, no, this is proper to fulfill all righteousness, which kind of sounds like Jesus isn't saying anything. <laughs> I sort of grew up that Jesus is saying, everyone should be baptized and I believe that so much, I'm going to do it even though I don't need it, just to show you you need to do it. <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> So I do want to say, I think this makes a little bit of sense, because remember what John's doing is a baptism of repentance. Um, I told you this a couple of times before. There's people who are getting in these ritual baths called mikvahs, and that washes off impurities, like I touched a dead body, I ate an unkosher food, I had my period, I had a nocturnal emission, something like that, right? So that washes off ritual impurity, but there anything you can do for sin, so think through, we, we, we just have one category, there's just sin now, but back then you were more concerned actually with ritual impurity because the rites were what mattered. So uh, what do you do with sin? Well, you kind of wait till Yom Kippur or you go to the, you go to the, the, the temple and you offer a, sort of a guilt offering or something like this, but if you can't make it to the temple, well, you know, what, do you, what do you do? Because not everybody lives in the temple and that gets expensive. You know, like instead of the swear jar, it's like the swear lamb. And that's a real expensive swear penalty. Do you, do you, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Um, so John the Baptist says something really revolutionary. He says, well, we're not just going to wash off ritual and impurity. We're going to wash off sin. And uh, that's, that really is a new idea because you're going to do it one time for, for good. And... Um, Repentance, you know, means a lot of different things biblically. It, it, it doesn't mean saying I'm sorry. It actually means a change in direction. It can be as simple as making a left turn. That, that represents repenting because you've changed your direction. Like I repent when I turned into the parking lot, my car repented. That, that actually works linguistically. Uh, repentance also means like a new mind, a new way of seeing the world. So it could be, you know, when, when you learned about the Riemann sum, instead of this, the disc and washer method, uh, that could represent repentance because it's a new conceptual way of viewing the world. I don't know if that makes sense to math folks, right? Don't you love the power rule? I mean, I've met people that love the disc and washer method after learning the power rule, and I don't know what's wrong with them. <laughs> that was too much math speak. Um, uh, so, so, you know, it's sort of like, r really, repentance can just be an epiphany. Like, when you learn to read, you really didn't pass letters without knowing what they meant anymore, you know? I mean, that, that, that's what happens when kids really learn how to read. They just read things without even intending to read them. That can be repentance. Repentance can also be making right what you did wrong. 
and it can be a, a deeply seated grief in a sort of just being embedded in structures that, that alienate and isolate other people. So, so it's very plausible Jesus repents. And why does he repent? To fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is not a piety category. I don't know if you know this. If you know any Jewish folks, they don't pass plates in the synagogue. You pay a membership fee. What, what they do uh, as a collection is something called tzedakah or tzedakah. That's the word righteousness. And what it means is sort of they, they independently or communally might collect money to pass on to people who are in need. Meeting the needs of others is righteousness. <laughs> so Jesus repents to fulfill meeting the needs of others. That's justice. So what Jesus is saying is, it's right that I orient myself toward justice now in a new way. I, th I think that's what he's saying. And he does. What do you know? He does. Like he, now he does justice differently than he did it before. He engages with people who are sick and possessed with unclean spirits, and he teaches, and he sort of quits his job. Total change in trajectory, right? And unlike, Matthew, unlike Mark and Luke, in Matthew, when Jesus hears the voice from heaven, so does everybody else. They all hear it. In Mark and in Luke, only Jesus do. He's driven out immediately to be tempted by the Satan or maybe by the Yetzer Hurrah, like we talked about last time. And the temptations, if you read them at face value, are just silly. <laughs> he's really hungry and he's tempted to turn rocks into bread. That is not a bad thing, is it? <laughs> I mean, if you're really hungry and you could do that, that would be good. That would be life-saving, right? So to read it at face value is silly. And jumping off of the temple, that's tempting when you're like in junior high. Jesus is 30. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just a silly thing to tempt God with. I mean, don't you think? Or bow down to me like he's the devil and Jesus knows that. Why on earth would the Son of God be tempted to be a Satanist? That just doesn't make any sense. Instead, I think it's helpful to read these temptations as really Jesus has confirmed that he is the you know, beloved child of God at baptism, and now he's tempted to think about how he is going to invest that in the world. And what most people wanted for Jesus, I think scholars say, is for him to win. <laughs> people like winners. I like winning stuff. You know, and the way they wanted him to win, specifically, was to beat back the Roman Empire and feed all the hungry Jewish people and take care of all of their problems. That's probably good. Do you know what I mean? If he'd done that, that probably would have been really good. Jesus, I think, is, is choosing between what's good and what's better instead of what's wrong and what's right. So they believe the Messiah would feed everybody. It's real rocky over there. If you could turn rocks into bread, you'd feed everybody. So that's a legitimate temptation to be the feeder that people want you to be and to assume the power that they'll give you when you do that bow down to me, do it my way, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Hey, what, what is the tempter's way? Strike up an army and win. Could he have done that? Maybe so. Would Jesus have been a better king than Caesar? Probably. He picked something different than that. The bit about jumping in temple is no different than the other. You know, um, <clears throat> the temple is this huge thing. That's the other diagram. 
When Herod got it, it was pathetic. I mean, it was a piddly little thing. And Herod enormed, uh, it made this enormous thing, like the size of two and a half or three football fields, depending who you talk to. That's huge, by the way. That's giant. And Jerusalem's really hilly, so he actually, um, there's valleys and things. And what Herod did, instead of filling in the valleys, he, um, he built arches. So he built bridges and built the temple on top of bridges. Tremendous feats of engineering. With some stones are more than 400 tons. No one even knows how they moved them. I mean, there's theories. They rolled them on logs. Nobody knows how they moved those rocks. Um, The temple's huge like this. Down here, outside the temple, are where the money changers go. And then the temple has got something called the Court of the Gentiles. That's all this area right here. That's the Mall of the Americas. Uh, It's huge. All commerce happens there. That's how it is in all Greek places. You know, if you go to Athens, there's the, the Acropolis. The Acropolis, the high city, that's what it means, Acropolis, like acrophobia, fear of heights, right? You've got a temple up on top of a huge mall, right? Here's the mall, here's the temple. Jewish people can come into the temple precinct. Gentiles can go out here. In here, there's a court that separates men from women. And then there's a court that separates priests from regular people. And the Holy of Holies is in there. And this is the actual temple building right here. Small, in the middle of three football fields. And this small building, probably 70 or 80 feet tall, probably had gold on top, is what Jesus is being offered to jump off the top of and float safely to the ground. And if he did that, of course, people would know, this is the Messiah. Let's follow him into battle or wherever else he goes. So the temptation is to do the sign that will get everyone to do what he wants them to do. Why is that bad? I don't know if it's bad. I think the choice is between good and better. Just for fun, Herod built a huge fortress here called the Antonia uh, that owns all of this with a tower taller than this one. Separation of church and state, not, not in his, not in his, uh, not in his uh, vision for, for building. So one way to read the temptations is, is at face value. Another is, again, the temptation to be who everybody else wanted or, or to be who God was calling him to be. That was chapters three and four. <laughs> Did I miss anything that you're really interested in? Interesting way to think about temptation, you know. Again, I just sort of think, I was told that life is all black and white and I just don't think that anymore. I rarely have choices that are clearly black and white. Now, sure, right? I mean, I guess I could choose when somebody doesn't say hello to me to stab them and murder them or not, but that, that thought rarely crosses my mind, honestly. You know, that, that's clearly a black choice, and anything, anything other than that would be really white. <laughs> Extremely rarely. Extremely rarely. Um, I suspect your life is much like mine, which means to think about Jesus' temptation really is, is actually makes it much more relatable. I mean, I'm, I'm often pick, I, I often pick between things that actually are not discernibly different from each other at all. When I go to the salad bar, <laughs> there really are not like 
evil choices at the salad bar. There's just ones I have to live with. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, but I, but I just, you know, and I think often, you know, if you've, if you've given care to somebody else, whether a dog or parent or other animal, I mean, we, we, we make decisions somewhat blindly for our kids. And, and we're not tempted like, oh, I just hope this hurts my daughter. I hope it breaks her or this is going to build her up. We usually think, what, what, what's the right choice? And, and we do our best we try to decide between reasonable and better, better choices. Again, I don't think anybody says, huh, you came home with an F. I'm either going to push you in a meat grinder or you're going to go to your room for a timeout. I, mean, I just don't know anybody that thinks like that. There's only two choices. What's that? Oh, I, listen, I know what it's like to have those fantasies, but they're not real choices, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I find this temptation very relatable, and it's a way interesting thing about, about thinking about Lent. Which this is the frame for Lent, right? Is, is Lent is about how can I create space for the better instead of, instead of settling for what I've been picking, you know? Essentially, how can I trade habits to get better habits? Then Jesus gives a Sermon on the Mount. Now remember, this is going to make him the new Moses. And he says things I can't explain to you, like blessed are the poor in spirit, not that they will be. They already are. And blessed is like a category of like happiness. So Jesus is kind of already saying, poor in spirit uh, people are already happy and they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what poverty of spirit means, actually. I mean, I can take guesses, but I don't, I don't know what that means. I do a lot better with Luke's Blessed are the poor, except I don't know that the poor are blessed. I consoled myself, you know, in church, like, oh, poor people are blessed because they don't have as many worries as us rich folks do. Life is simpler and easier. Um, I think if you're poor, like, that's not a blessing. <laughs> I think you'd be happy to have more resources. <laughs> so, so this is a hard way to rationalize. I mean, really, in all the Beatitudes are oxymoronic. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, not blessed will be those who mourn, right? I mean, that's strange. How are people who mourn happy already and they'll be comforted? Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Or they won't, they'll get talked over in a vestry meeting. You know, I, you know, I just, this is tough stuff. So I don't know how to explain them to you. I don't, I don't know. After that, <laughs> Jesus says a bunch, of, a bunch of really different things in his sermon, which is, did he really give one sermon for a couple hours? A good storyteller wouldn't do this. It, it's not thematically linked. Does that make sense what I'm saying? This is probably an amalgamation of sayings that Matthew's put together into Jesus representing the law. Representing the law happened, right? The, the law came in, in uh, Exodus. It gets represented in Deuteronomy, which means second law. This is like Tritonomy, the third law. Right? And Jesus does some monkeying with it. He says things like, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'll tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Well, that's a tough teaching. 
Because I can tell you, uh, and you may be more advanced than I am, but I actually have very little control over thoughts that come into my mind. I can control what stays in my mind, but what comes I don't really have good control of. That's interesting to think about, right? I actually am pretty sure this is why we don't want our children exposed to material that's too graphic, because once it enters the brain, I think the brain actually, there's no way to let it out. That, that this makes sense, right? This is why gore and pornography are in general like bad things. Interesting that people find those things entertaining because those images didn't come out. That's, that's, that's a tough one to, to, to think about. Um, hey, I, you've heard it said don't kill, but anybody who looks at their brother with anger has, has murdered him. That's a tough teaching. I get angry all the time. <laughs> I actually think it's a good thing that I don't hurt people physically with my anger, but, it, but I, apparently I could do better. Um, Jesus says this other thing. You've heard it said uh, that you can divorce, but I tell you if you divorce somebody for any reason other than sexual unchastity, you have, uh, you've committed adultery. We're thinking about this one. I grew up in a church where if you're divorced for any reason, you could not have a leadership position. Um, but Jesus isn't talking to women. I don't know if you've noticed this. He's talking to men. And he says, if a woman commits uh, sexual unchastity, you may divorce her. And the context is that since women can't own property and have their own jobs, if a man divorces a woman, there's only one way she can make money which is the oldest profession in the world. He sort of says, if you divorce a woman, you, you make her a prostitute, so the only reason you can divorce a woman is if she's already being a prostitute. At the time, people were divorcing women because they could afford to, and maybe they didn't like her cooking, or they wanted a younger, a, a newer model. And as long as you could pay the bride price, you could do that. You could divorce a woman for any reason. I actually think this is Jesus being extremely pro-women, saying that takes, a, your, your favor and your fancy makes a woman live in prostitution unto death. So you can't do that. <laughs> Unless she's already doing that, but she's not doing that, friends. I just want you to know women in general didn't do that. And in general, women still don't do that. <clears throat> Uh, he says some interesting things that are worth picking at. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world, right? Salt of the earth. Um, we, we, we just in general eat that Morton's stuff, which is made in a lab. It's all white. And at the time of Jesus, salt was so valuable that that's the root of the word salary, like people are paid in salt. And salt is many different colors and textures and flavors, including, you know, you can go to Hawaii and you can find green, black, pink, in just Hawaii, and some white sea salt as well. And I had a friend who was really into this and gave me some salt and said, look, salt of the earth, salt of the earth is about being exactly who God made you to be, not some homogenized Morton product. I thought that's really interesting, right? It's one of those things that you could think if God wanted us all to be the same, God wouldn't have made us all so different. So the way that we be the salt of the earth is we sort of be who God has made us to be. And if you lose that, you've lost your saltiness. Uh, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting read, isn't it? Because the truth is salt can't lose its saltiness, not chemically. Sodium chloride is always salt. I guess if you broke the bond, it wouldn't be that anymore, but 
<laughs> I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, he says some other really interesting things, you know, like um, in, in, this, in this sermon. Uh, one of them is just a really hard teaching. He says, I didn't come to abolish a single jot or tittle from the law. You know, in English, this is a jot on the letter I. I know it's a dot, but that's a jot. And that's a tittle. It makes a T different from an L. Right? In Hebrew, this is a jot. It's, it's the letter yod. And a tittle is this line that turns the H sound, turns this into the H sound from this, which is the K sound. So not only did I not come to wipe out the law, I didn't even come to change any of it. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no place in the kingdom of God. This is not a piety term. This is a justice term. Tough teaching, though, because the Pharisees are the best people there are. You know, they're just, they're, they're like Mennonites and Amish people. Like, they're just, you know, they're like so good that they're quaint and nostalgic. But you've got to be gooder than them. Neat story about who has faith in the Gospel of Matthew written to a Jewish audience, that centurion who's a Gentile, right? And says, you don't even have to come into my house. If you did, you'd defile yourself because a Jewish person going into a Gentile house has made himself unclean. No, you just say the word and it'll happen and we'll be good. <laughs> and the quintessential faith is from a Gentile, not from a Jew. It's interesting, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, but highlighting Gentile faith. We get this lovely phrase, uh, we, Jesus teaches his people to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And we pray this phrase every week, and I don't like it. Um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I actually would like to change the prayer. God, forgive us our trespasses, especially when we don't forgive other people. Uh, that would be a lot more favorable in my living <laughs> situation, right? Um, of course, Trespass is not in Matthew. The word is debt, and that refers to finances. Forgive us our, our debts as we forgive people who owe us money. He goes on to say, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven, and if you don't, then you won't. And that's a really scary criterion to think about. Uh, I want to suggest, I didn't, that's a hard one for me to read at face value, because if if I'm not forgiven unless I forgive, then God's just like me. But I think God's probably bigger than I am. So, so I, wonder, I, I, I wonder what to do with that phrase. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? If God's saying, you better forgive or else, <laughs> that's just a tough, that's a tough teaching. But that's kind of how it reads. You forgive or else. I'll put you in hell forever. That's sort of how I grew up hearing it. And but the, par the um, parable is about the man who didn't forgive the, the debt. That's, that's what that says. Oh, let's read that one next week. I, I like that one. It's a good one. It's on the docket for next week. But just hold that, just pin that one though, right? Pin that one. Because 
if God won't forgive you unless you forgive, then you have to earn forgiveness from God. And the question is, is forgiveness ever something that you earn or is it something that's given? Yeah, I like to translate that as, yeah, I know, I like that better. Not equal to, but as. It, it can mean a lot of different things depending on our, our strictness of language. But I do think the forgiver else is a tough one. I just, I just want to suggest, I think that's real tough. And, and I think you can read Matthew abusively, and I think we, we can read it a different way as well. Like we've read the Hebrew Bible sometimes, maybe sometimes there's a strong-looking opinion that's actually meant for us to consider and come to an opposite conclusion. The interesting thing about our liturgy, whether you read Eucharistic Prayer 1 at 8 o'clock or Eucharistic Prayer 2, is that Christ made himself a, a sacrifice for which part of the world? For the whole world. Even people that don't forgive other people. The liturgy implies that, I think. We have a tension, you know. I think there's a difference between being forgiven and living into it. So I think that's, that's maybe something to think about, right? Maybe it's difficult to experience God's forgiveness if we're not willing to give it to anybody else. I, I don't, I mean, again, I, I think there's lots of conversations that can happen around that, you know? Yeah, and I think the reason we're called to forgive, right, is not so that we can have more pain and show how much more faith we have is because, like, that's just more enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, essentially, there's this, this, this trumped-up thing that I got from a lot of church years where forgiveness is even a hard word because for me, it, it sort of meant, like, you have to let everything sort of go. And, and I actually think forgiveness now is maybe just a lot more of an orientation that I'm not going to let the past define my future. <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense, you know, like, like uh, you know, it's got me where I am, but it doesn't have to keep me where I was. Seems pretty tiring. Now, I will tell you, there's people I've forgiven who I'll never lend money to again. And I think that's called wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that seems fair. I mean, actually, I think it'd be very trite to forget. I mean, I think it would be very dishonoring to the living and the dead. It's like one of those tangential things, you know, when people lose somebody that they love and they say, well, I just wish it didn't hurt anymore. I mean, the only way that could happen, right, is if that person had never existed for you. <laughs> is that what we really want? I don't think so. We just want a way to, to, to live with that absence more comfortably, right? But, but remembering the reason the absence is so difficult is because it was so positive. 
okay, a couple other neat things. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You love God or you love mammon, not money, mammon, which is like today you'd call that um, money, power, or maybe sex money, power. That's like a, a, like a sort of a, that was a teen word 20 years ago. Um, you just, you can only serve one master. So the question is, which God are you serving? The God of yourself, the God of your friends, the God of your culture, or the God who transcends and creates all those things? Rather funny, right? Uh, you don't uh, remove a speck from your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own. I will tell you, I'm extremely talented at doing that. Um, this, this, this gospel does not take into account my spiritual gift of criticism or um, analysis. <laughs> I think this is actually supposed to be funny, this, this phrase, you know? I mean, it really, we rarely laugh when we do these things, but I think that's supposed to be funny. Uh, really interesting thing happens with the leper um, and, and then with the paralytic, and this is probably the one to end on, and I probably skipped things you cared about, but um, there's this leper, and he says, Jesus, have mercy on me, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, notice the leper doesn't say, I want you to heal my leprosy. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, well, I am willing, in fact. Go ahead and be clean. Clean is that category about purity. Remember at the time of Jesus, the reason he's got leprosy is because he's done something wrong. And really what the leper is saying is, I'll get better physically if you'll forgive what I've done wrong. So I just want you to clean me spiritually, and that will clean my body. Now, we don't think like that exactly anymore. Notice that the paralytic is a parallel story. Jesus is teaching, and the friends bring this paralyzed guy on a mat. Notice, though, the guy on the mat had no choice in the matter. It wasn't his faith that got him better. It was his friend's. This goes against the idea, doesn't it, of a very individualistic culture where you make your own decisions. No, no, you can be brought to Jesus kicking and screaming. <laughs> Isn't that lovely about friendship? We do that for our friends. We do what's best for them even if they don't want to. I think that's a good definition of friendship. Anyway, they bring him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I just wanted to walk, thank you very much. But of course, what Jesus is saying is an equivalent statement. Everybody in the room had decided the reason he's paralyzed is because he sinned. And Jesus is actually making a bolder statement. He says, which one's easier to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. But so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, which also heals bodies, I tell you, get up and walk. This interesting thing Jesus is doing is dealing with people's perceptions of piety as a way of healing them physically as well. I didn't know that we think about this much, although, again, I, I think in the, the early 80s, the AIDS epidemic was a bit like that, like people earned it. You know, and even when Arthur Ashe came out, it was sort of like, I can't believe you did that, Arthur. Got that blood transfusion. People had a hard time even believing that because, you know, it seems 
wrong to punish somebody with AIDS because they got a blood transfusion. They must have done something else. This is really Jesus getting rid of that whole category. That's what he's, I think, trying to do, is that you, you don't get paralyzed because you're sinful. I don't know that we think about that with disease, but I've, I've made the case and I make it again. I think we often think, often think, people often get what they pay for. And, and this is Jesus, I think, trying to subvert that. I got a speeding ticket because I said that bad thing to my mom last night because I, you know, I haven't got one for years. So it's because I did something yesterday. Yeah, karma, though, is this interesting word we've stolen from Hinduism. And karma, you know, um, <laughs> isn't actually based on morality. It's based on doing the duty of your caste, for one thing. So if you're poor, you better be content to be poor. So karma doesn't fit American American social development at all. Because if you're poor, you should aspire to be rich. The other problem with karma is it implies that you uh, are, are going to be reincarnated perpetually and that something bad happening today might not be something you earned yesterday. It might be something you earned four lifetimes ago. And really, that's a great way of figuring out why bad things happen to good people. They don't. They were bad four lives ago, and it's catching up with them now. So karma just doesn't really fit Judeo-Christian heritage for those reasons. Does, does, does that make sense? We've used it to say what goes around comes around, but that's not really what it means. <laughs> yes. And so that's an example of syncretism, right? That's an example of syncretism where we've come up with this one word that represents this idea, but it, it underrepresents the idea. And again, the part we miss about karma is it's not just about morality, it's about duty. It's about duty. So it's your duty if you're poor to stay poor. It's your duty if you're born in a particular caste to stay in that caste. And if you get out of the caste, you've actually accrued bad karma. Again, that's very un-American. But, we, but we, we, we've dropped that nuance, which is original to the term, because we want to say what goes around comes around. But, I'm not sh- but I really think Jesus is trying to subvert that, right? This guy didn't earn this. And even if you think he did, fine, we'll, we'll deal with the sin. <laughs> we'll just deal with the sin instead of dealing with the symptom, which is that he can't walk. We'll deal with what you think is the source condition. Okay, we had to stop there on time. So we will pick up with Matthew, not next week. That's Ash Wednesday. We'll have two weeks to finish Matthew. Thanks, good to see you.